2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse number 6, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for your presence here in this room today. Lord, we want to learn. We want to grow as we have been learning all through 2 Corinthians, as we have taught verse by verse and now have come upon this text. You are sufficient for all things. Lord, there is no lack. You are Jireh, the God who provides. And Lord, I pray today that you would open the heart and mind of everyone in this room. I pray, God, that we would have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us we would hear the word of God. I pray, Lord, for your anointing, not because I deserve it. I do not. I certainly have not earned it, but I need it today. Would you anoint me so that I can communicate your word with simplicity and clarity, and yet with the boldness and the authority that it deserves, because it is the word of the Lord. So help me today to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you, and captivate our attention today, arrest that attention so we can hear clearly what God is saying to our hearts today, I pray. This is a sacred moment. This is the hearing of God's word to us. And I pray, Lord, that it would have eternal consequence. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. I always, um, I always like to say this, and I said it last week, um, for those of you who may be guests, and we have many today, uh, we are preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. And so we have landed here um, in the last couple of weeks. We've been in chapter 8 and 9. We'll conclude today with chapter 9. When I get back, we'll start it in chapter 10, a great text. Those first 11 verses of chapter 10 about spiritual battle and warfare. But today we are continuing our series from 2 Corinthians called Sufficient. And inside that series with chapter eight and nine, there has been this little three week kind of mini series uh, because of the way that Paul wrote Second Corinthians that we have found in chapter eight and chapter nine. This section of scripture uh, deals specifically with the collection of money that Paul was taking 
for the church at Jerusalem. It was poverty-stricken. Um, they had come across difficult times. A great famine had hit them, and so Paul was collecting money for the Jerusalem church. And in this process, he lays down some very clear principles and guidelines about how, as Christians, we are to handle our financial resources. Paul, as we have said in weeks past, considered giving, generosity, our worship of, with our resources, he considered it a matter of theology. He did not consider it something secular. He didn't consider giving something we do to pay the bills. He saw it as something deeply theological. It meant something to our spiritual lives and our discipleship. So as he encourages the Corinthians now to complete the collection uh, that they were taking for the Jerusalem believers, he outlines some very concrete principles and some very clear guidelines about how they and how we still today should give. In the first section of, of the two-chapter unit, chapter 8 and 9 on giving, in that first section, in the first week of this mini-series, we outlined eight truths about generous giving. And ultimately, we learned this, that generous giving, then and now, is not to be carried out with the expectation of getting. I don't give to get more. But instead, giving should be carried out in order to finish the work to which God has called us. We read that in 2 Corinthians 8, 11. You should finish what you started. Let your eagerness, let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. So we give not to get, we give to finish the work that God has called us to. Then in the second section of this unit, chapter eight and nine, we learn some basic principles of Christian giving or Christian generosity. First of all, we talked about the fact it should not be an uncomfortable topic in the church. Secondly, it is to be carried out with God's glory as our aim, it's not for us. Thirdly, it should be handled with integrity and we dealt with that at some level. And number four, our Christian generosity should make Jesus famous and should always be marked by a godly and proper attitude. Today we're gonna to focus on that attitude and that attitude is one of cheerfulness because God loves, how many have ever heard that? God loves a cheerful giver. Probably you've heard the story, I may even have told it before, but a mother gave her child a $1 bill and a quarter, and they walked into church, and she said to her daughter, sweetheart, you can place either one of these in the offering plate. It is entirely up to you. And so on the way home, they were talking, and the mother said to the daughter, so which did you decide to give, the dollar or the quarter? And the little girl said, well, at first I was gonna give the dollar, but then that man behind the pulpit said, God loves a cheerful giver, and I felt like I would be much more cheerful if I only gave the quarter. <laughs> and I'm pretty certain a lot of Christians, that's why they're happy all the time, is they give the quarter instead of the dollar. On the other hand, in a Christian Leadership Journal article called Transforming Scrooge, uh, Gordon McDonald, great writer, great 
leader and teacher told this story about how God transformed him from giving as an institutional obligation to a cheerful giver. By an institutional obligation, I mean this. There are some that have been so legalistically taught, and there's nothing wrong with being taught to give, but so legalistically taught that they get their paycheck and they write their check and they write it to the penny and they're going to tithe. And if it's 22 cents at the end, it's 22 cents, not a penny more, not a penny less. They're going to give their tithe, but it becomes very formal and very institutional. And many of us kind of felt that way or have felt that way. But Gordon McDonald talked about how that was changed in his life. He said, the process began when my wife Gail and I made a missions trip to West Africa. On the first Sunday of our visit, we joined a large crowd of desperately poor Christians for worship. And as we neared the church, I noticed that almost every person was carrying something. Some hoisted cages of noisy chickens, others carried baskets of yams, and still others toted bags of eggs or bowls of cassava paste. Why are they bringing all that stuff? I asked one of our hosts, watch, she said. Almost every person in that African congregation brought something, a chicken, a basket of yams, a bowl of cassava paste. I saw that giving, whether yams or dollars, is not optional for African Christians. Soon after the worship began, the moment came when everyone stood and poured into the aisles, singing and clapping, even shouting. The people began moving forward, each in turn bringing whatever he had to a space in the front. Then I got it. This was West African offering time. The chickens would help others get a tiny business started. The yams and the eggs given would be sold in the marketplace to help the needy. The, the, the cassava paste would guarantee that someone who was hungry could eat. I was captivated. I'd never seen a joyful offering before. Obviously, my keeping money under the radar policy would not have worked in West African church. Those African believers, although they never knew it, had moved me. I began to understand that giving, whether yams or dollars, was not an option for Christ followers. Rather, it was an indication of the direction and tenor of one's whole life. That's Gordon McDonald's story. I was in Tanzania last year. And when the offering time came, and by the way, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago if they could bring chickens. We do not process chickens here, okay? <laughs> this is not West Africa. But when I was in Tanzania, the same kind of thing happened. They didn't have animals, but they, people danced and they shouted and they, the praise team came out in all their colorful garb and they, they marched their offering to the front and they were clapping and they were happy. And it was this kind of cheerful giving that I had not been exposed to either. Let me share with you just real quickly, and I won't be long, um, three principles of cheerful giving, if I could. Number one, cheerful giving embraces the necessity of obedience, but it shuns the temptation of greed. It embraces the necessity of obedience, but it shuns the temptation to greed. Look at what Paul says here. This I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Look at verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
Let's first deal with the necessity of obedience that we see in verse 7. Paul says, let each one give. That's what the New King James says. If you have the NIV, it says each one should give. In the ESV, it says each one must give. And again, in the New American Standard, it says each one must give. In other words, this is not a ministry, giving is not a ministry just for the well-to-do. Giving is not a ministry just for those who have been Christians for 10 or 20 or 30 years. We should all be obedient. We should all give generously to the Lord. But then Paul says, as he purposes in his heart. In other words, what he decides to do, and this implies some thought. It implies some reflection. It implies some knowledge of what the Bible teaches we are supposed to do. As one purposes in his heart because he wants to obey, because he wants to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he gives, and each one should, but he gives as he purposes in his heart. This is a commitment. It is a resolved heart. It's not a sloppily made decision. So not in my notes, but can I just encourage you, especially our couples here today, this is something you ought to talk about. This is something you ought to pray about. This is something you ought to search scripture about. What does God expect us to do? And let's do this as a couple. Let's purpose in our heart that this is not some institutional act. This is an act of worship. And what an incredible thing for couples to worship the Lord together in their giving as they have purposed in their heart what God wants them to do. That's what Paul is calling us to. And so there is this necessity of obedience, but the motive for our obedience is crucial. Why do I want to obey? Why do I obey? We are to obey not grudgingly, not out of necessity, not reluctantly or from compulsion, not because we've been pressured to feel bad, why do we want to give? Because God loves the one who gives cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. St. Maximus of Turnin wrote these words. I think it was in 300. Joyful, therefore, and cheerful is the one who attends to the poor. Quite clearly, he is joyful because for a few small coins, he acquires heavenly treasures for himself. On the contrary, the person who pays taxes is always sad and dejected. How many are thankful the Bible doesn't say God loves a cheerful taxpayer? Aren't you thankful for that? Right, nobody wants to do that joyfully. Rightly he is sad, who is not drawn to payment by love, but forced by fear. A Christ debtor that is joyful but Caesar's is sad because love urges the one to payment and punishment constrains the other. The one is invited by rewards, the other is compelled by penalties. See, we give to the Lord cheerfully because we're encouraged to do so. We are modeled by Jesus and his love. We do it with love, not out of compulsion, not in a legalistic way, but we respond in a heart that is thankful for what Jesus has done for us. 
I'll never tell you to be a cheerful taxpayer, but I will tell you to be a cheerful giver because we get to give to the one who gave his all to us. Aren't you thankful for that? Now, while cheerful giving embraces obedience, I should give, it does shun the temptation of greed. There's this interesting verse, and I'm going to maybe rock some worlds here in just a moment. I hope not. If I do, it won't be the first or last time, so it's all right. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. That, that whole concept, we call it the law of the harvest, is actually part of what is called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's seen throughout the wisdom books. Job's friends, when he, they spoke to him, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 22.8 says, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. In other words, if you sow sin, you're going to reap sorrow. And the rod of his anger will fail. We read in Job 4.8, even as I have seen those who plow iniquity, sow trouble, and sow trouble, reap the same. Now, just look at me for just a moment. So in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament prophets, there was this understanding of the law of the harvest. What you sow, you are going to reap. Now, the prophets, that was the wisdom writers, the prophets actually challenged this. The prophets said sometimes there can be a reverse outcome. Read Jeremiah 12, verse 13. They have sown wheat, but they reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but they do not profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. And what about this one? Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. So all of a sudden we have this challenge to this law of the harvest. And let me just help you with your theology for just a moment. Wisdom literature, that is Job and much of Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is a literature of principles, not promises. For instance, Proverbs says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I wish I could stand here today and tell you that's an absolute promise. It's not. It's a principle. If you teach your kids the way of the Lord, if you, if you pour into them the love of Jesus and the word of God, it is far more likely that even if they wander, they will come back than one that has not been taught that. It is a principle, but it is not a take it to the bank promise. Why? Because God gives every individual free will. Say amen if you believe that. And so the prosperity gospel that says, if I give this much, I'm going to give this much, is a result of a misinterpretation of scripture. Sowing and reaping is not a temporal and an immediate response. The prosperity gospel became popular and was fashioned here in the West because we live in instant gratification society. We order Whopper with cheese, no tomato, and in three minutes, we expect Whopper with cheese and four tomatoes, right? I know that's how, that's how it happens these days. But you understand what I'm saying. We are used to that instant gratification. But Eugene Peterson says the person who looks for quick results in the seed planting of well-doing will be disappointed. If I want potatoes for dinner tomorrow, it will do me little good to plant them in my garden tonight. 
There are long stretches of darkness and an invisibility and silence that separate planting from reaping. During the stretches of waiting, there is cultivating and weeding and nurturing and planting still other seeds. Now, Paul uses the wisdom principle when he says, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, because that is a principle, but our motivation for giving must not be greed, expecting that we're gonna get a certain amount back. Our motivation is that we love the one who gave to us. Say amen if you believe that. Obedience and love should motivate us to give cheerfully. Number two, Um, cheerful giving understands the notion of sufficiency and the purpose of blessing. Look at these two texts. Uh, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things, look at this, may have an abundance, look at this next phrase, for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. How many believe, we're gonna put it on the screen, but how many believe God can make sure that we have sufficiency. How many believe that? God is able, that's what verse eight says. God can make sure your need is met. We sang that this morning. If he clothes the lilies with all of his splendor, how much more will he clothe you? That's right out of scripture, that's what Jesus taught. If he sees every sparrow when it falls, how much more does he love you and care for you? God can make sure that we have all sufficiency, but why does God give us all sufficiency? I just, I pointed it out in the text so that you may have an abundance, look at me, for every good work. God gives us sufficiency so we have abundance for every good work. The classic and often repeated Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to a very generous Philippian congregation about making sure that God would make sure that they had enough so that they could give to the ministry in Macedonia and the ministry in Thessalonica. Paul was saying, God will make sure you have all sufficiency so that you can advance every good work. God will make sure that you have enough because he is the one that gives seed to the sower. He may not give seed to the one that just stuffs it in his pocket, but he'll give seed to the one who sows it. This is the theme that Paul started in chapter 8, based off of the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Paul's point is made here and elsewhere. God can give us all sufficiency. Riches are uncertain. Riches are temporal. They are here today and gone tomorrow. And we are not promised more than sufficiency. And even, listen, look at me, even that sufficiency is not necessarily for us. 
Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. Don't just enjoy them. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. The purpose of God's blessing to us is for us to bless. How many believe that? The purpose of God's blessing to us, He, God, supplies seed to the sower. The cheerful giver is cheerful because he knows what he is giving was given to him by God in the first place so he could then sow it for the sake of others. The reason that I have gotten to the point, and, and I'm not the best giver in the world, but the reason I really enjoy it now is I know that what God has given me, he has given it to me so I can bless others. And when I bless others, then he just keeps supplying seed to the sower and it makes it joyful. How many are glad you came this morning? Just a quick little check on that, all right. You are enriched, Paul said, in everything for all liberality so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those in need, they will thank God. Timothy Keller wrote this little book called The Prodigal God. And he tells this story. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot so he took the carrot to the king and he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or I ever will grow. And because it's the greatest carrot I've ever grown, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was so touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and he delighted and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you give something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading this handsome black stallion. He bowed low and he said, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever had or bred, or I ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart, and he said, thank you. And he took the horse, and he merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, and the king knew that. And so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrots but you were giving yourself the horse. He understood that the nobleman was giving to get. The gardener was giving as an act of worship. That's how God calls us to give. That's what cheerful givers do. Cheerful giving understands the notion of sufficiency and the purpose of blessing. Let me give you the last point real quickly. Cheerful giving is a demonstration of a faithful confession 
and it is a catalyst to sincere thanksgiving. Look at verse 12 in 2 Corinthians 9, and I'm almost done. The administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. And then he ends, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Here's what Paul was saying, and, and, and just hold with me for five more minutes. Paul was saying to the Corinthians, the Jerusalem saints are going to rejoice when they get your gift. When they see us coming and we hand them this gift, they are going to rejoice because it is demonstrating to them that you have been obedient to the commission and the confession of the gospel of Christ. What was Paul's confession? What was the gospel? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Paul said, when they see you giving, they will know that you are holding true to that confession. You give because your Savior gave. Your giving is self-sacrificing, Paul said. It's not for the worthy or the deserving, Giving freely we have received, so freely we give. Cheerful giving marks one who is aligning themselves with their confession and experience. When we give on Sundays or we give online or we give to a need, we are aligning ourselves with our confession that we believe God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. We're aligning ourselves with that confession and then Thanksgiving is the natural response of those in a context of cheerful generosity. Would you stand with me? I want to just talk for two or three more minutes, but go ahead and stand. Worship team, come, please. Just hold steady if you would. I want to land this thing as best I can. Um, Thanksgiving is the natural response of those in a context of cheerful generosity. Paul spoke not only, just watch me for a moment, Paul spoke not only about the gift meeting the need of the Jerusalem saints, but here's what he says, really interesting phrase, but he said, but it was also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Look at the New Living Translation, it says it really well. So two good things will result from the ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met. That was a good thing. And they will joyfully express their thanks to God. Please, please just work with me here. So Paul is saying, when we take that, when we take that gift to them, two good things are going to happen. You're going to meet their need, and they're going to be really thankful for that. But beyond that, they are going to joyfully express thanks to God. So when we give cheerfully and needs are met or lives are changed, God is glorified and therefore thanksgiving prevails. It's been many years ago now, Kyle was 16, so that would be 20 years ago. Um, we uh, went on a mission trip. We went to Quito, Ecuador. And uh, we knew ahead of time, we'd been told ahead of time that they did not have a communion set. And uh, 
at a church of about, the, the church that we were helping build a new floor on. It's a church of about 120 and they didn't have a new, they didn't have a communion set. And I mean, it was a ragtag communion set. They had, I, I mean, they didn't have these, but if you can imagine, and if we did this in America, they would have like Tweety cups and Superman cups and, you know, Batman cups and, and, and Chick-fil-A cups, anything. They just had this mix and plates and bowls. They had communion ready to go that day when we got there for the service, but we had already decided and you all gave, we bought them a brand new communion set, I think for like 200. They didn't know that. And they got time to, for communion to be served and they had towels over their plates and their Tweety cups and all of that. And uh, we made this presentation to them. And, and it, what, what happened next totally blew my mind. I thought, well, they'll use that next time. The ladies of that church went up and they got that set and they went back in the kitchen and they switched it all over. They were gonna use their brand new set. And these people worshiped and they celebrated and they gave thanks to God. It wasn't about us. I've not been back there since, but they saw generosity. And so instead of just thanking us, which they did, they worshiped God. That's what generosity does. Not only meets a need, causes people to worship God. Last year, you all gave and we were able to build a brand new uh, dorm for a Bible college at Burkina Faso where they're having to turn people away who want to go into the ministry because there's no place for them to stay. And I watched the video of their groundbreaking, not groundbreaking, but their dedication service. And it resulted in thanksgiving to God. These people were thanking God for a simple building had no indoor plumbing, but it was a place they could go and they could stay while they studied the word so they could reach their nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when Thanksgiving emerges, God is glorified and his will is done. Cheerful giving is actually the highest form of gratitude in response to God's gift of Jesus to us. That's why Paul ends saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift New Living Translation says, thank God for this gift. Too wonderful for words. How many would honestly say with me, the gift of Jesus is really too wonderful for me to describe? And that's why we give. We're not paying him back. We're just responding in gratitude for a gift that our words can never fully describe. Tim Keller says worship if you'll flip that last screen up there worship is seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth Father thank you for your word today teach us Lord to seek to understand the depth of your worth, the wonder of your majesty, the amazingness of your grace and love. So that when we give, when we serve, when we volunteer, when we write a check, when we send a card, that we're doing it in response to a gift too wonderful for words. 
So since we don't have words, we can never send you a thank you card that would adequately tell you how much we are thankful and grateful for that gift. We live our lives as a living sacrifice, generously giving, laying our lives, our resources, our time, our energy on the altar, saying, God, we're not paying you back. We're just responding in worship to a gift that is too wonderful for us. I thank you for that today. Lord, would you help us to become both generous and cheerful givers of all that you have entrusted to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, would you, with your head still bowed for just a moment, I want to ask a simple question. I preached on giving last week. This is the end of that series. I preached on giving last week. Three young men in their 20s, maybe early 30s, one of them, raised their hand and said, I want to know Jesus as the Lord of my life. He gave me that much. I want to know him. Maybe that's you today. I preach to Christians about giving, but I've preached about giving in response to his gift. And maybe you never really understood his gift. I'm not asking you to give today. I'm just saying, do you want to respond to God's gracious gift in Jesus by saying, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to make you the Lord of my life. Is there anyone in this room that would just slip up a hand and say, pray for me. I want to surrender my life today to Jesus. He gave his gracious gift to me, and I want to give my life to him. Anyone in this room that would just raise a hand, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone in this room? With your head still bowed, how many would say, just by an upraised hand, I want to learn across the board in every area of my life how to respond more generously in my service, in my giving, in my worship, in my attitude. I want to learn how to respond more generously and more appropriately to this gift. Too wonderful for words. How many